You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax. In this episode, we are going to be talking all about our workflows and all kinds of ways. We're going to be talking about our design workflows, our design to development workflows, our sort of how we use Git in our projects, uh, how we even deploy and really just work on our sites, what the process is that both Wes and I use as sort of in a project to project basis. So as always with me is Wes Boss. Say what's up. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, so this episode is sponsored by Coffee Cup Software CSS Grid Building Tool, which is a brilliant tool that allows you to both design and develop uh, CSS grid-based layouts and a really brilliant visual editor, as well as View School, which is going to be a new course on View, which is going to really level up your view skills. So check it out. Uh, we'll get into both of those a little bit more as the episode goes on. So how are you doing, Wes? How's it going today? I'm doing fantastic. I just got back from Dayton, Ohio, hey. in which I had a uh, this company down there called Sparkbox. They're a pretty cool company. They actually designed the uh, original code pen layout, which I thought was pretty nifty. But they brought me in to do a workshop on kind of like just like web apps and, and JavaScript in general. So we did a full day workshop on promises, async await, modules. We used uh, Parcel Bundler. By the way, oh, I'm absolutely dude, in love dude, with Parcel. Yeah, I've, I'm so good. I'm working on a um, um, a course right now for Electron and I'm using yeah. Parcel for that and it's just like everything in Parcel I'm just a huge fan I, I use it it's all amazing. the time yeah I can't believe how 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 much of a joy it is I find that the docs aren't great but you mostly don't don't need the docs yeah we did that and then we also did um service workers we we built this like photo booth application where we like lazy loaded and code splitted and what else did we do with it we we made it offline with service workers and it was just a lot of fun met a whole bunch of really cool people got to hang out in ohio i rented a pretty pretty sick jeep to drive down (laughs) there i saw the jeep (laughs) jeep life man yeah, I wanted to like drive it on something and start flexing it, but I couldn't find any like mountains or I was going to, you know, you know, Target has those big red balls. Dude, I wanted to drive it onto one of those. But locally, one of those balls broke loose and rolled into a car oh, and just no. like just nailed it. So I don't want to kill anyone. Yeah, so that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, actually, it's funny. There's this uh, Target in Colorado, in Denver here, that has this giant rock on a corner, and it's like a corner that people end up like miscalculating all the time. And <laughs> maybe if they would have had your Jeep, they would be fine. But there's like it has its own like Twitter account where people post photos of cars stuck up on the rock because they undercut it. The rock oh. pins underneath the car, and then they have to get towed <laughs> because there's no way to get off of it. It happens all the time. It's hilarious. That's a nightmare. It's I would a hate total that. nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Today we are going to be talking about workflows. Often Scott and myself, we got a lot of questions about like, what's your process for starting a design? What's your process for taking a design to development? What's your deployment process look like? Or what's your workflow look like? What's your Git workflow look like? So uh, we're going to rattle through a bunch of common workflows for design, design to dev, Git, deployment, and then anything else that we can think of. I mean, just say like what our workflow currently looks like and uh, hopefully you can gain a thing or two from it. Yeah, cool. So uh, do you want to get into it first? Or you want to talk about what we can start at the very beginning, sort of like yeah. the design process. Let's, let's kick it off with uh, the design workflow. So the first thing that I do is is when I want to build something, well, I, I, get, I should take that back. It's not necessarily always the first thing that I do, but anytime that I'm going to put out a production website that's client facing, most likely one of my course websites or one of the applications that we build in one of my courses, a big part of that is is designing the actual application. So I'm going to sort of detail uh, what my process looks like and what my workflow looks like to do that. So first of all, I don't design in code. A lot of people ask me that, like, oh, do you, why don't you just like do 
your design in CSS. And I find that I'm not as fast if I were to do it just in CSS. And I also find that I don't have the the flexibility that I would want to be able to, to quickly move something or quickly group something or quickly make a reusable symbol. And when I use the design program, I feel like uh, the stuff that I make is much better because I'm not restricted by what I know is possible in CSS. And that's often the case with designers where a designer who doesn't know how to code will often make something. And the first reaction from a developer is, Ugh, can't do that. And don't you know what we can do? But that's almost a good thing, I think, because it really forces you as a developer to stretch yourself and, and to think about creative solutions of how to implement specific things. Yeah, it's one of those things that like, I think it would be great if it could happen more for everyone, because I remember there was one of these layouts that I was given at Ford. And I just remember when I first saw it, it was just like, you can't do this stuff. And I found the most <laughs> creative solution to it. Uh, it was like, I just remember like sort of just really impressing myself with the creative solution I found for it. And I, when I first looked at it, I was like, I can't do this. And then by the end of it, I was like, I am the best because I figured out yeah. this crazy solution <laughs> for this, you know, but it's a huge, huge booster. Yeah, totally. So what I do generally when I approach a new design, I always have sort of a look and feel for for every single product and course and, and thing that I build. And, and usually those come from inspiration from any really anything uh, what's going on. Like, uh, for example, the syntax uh, kind of look and feel of both the logo and the website. Um, a lot of that comes from a cover CD art from a band called Boys Night Out. So if you so if you Google Boys Night Out train wreck and you find the uh, the the album art for that specific band, you'll see that like a lot of the syntax logos is heavily inspired by that. That's also where a lot of my love for that specific yellow that I've used in almost everything I, I ever do nice. has come from. And then I just have like a lot of like kind of inspiration always saved, whether that's screenshots in on my phone where I see stuff that I like or uh, whether it's just kind of a, a feeling that I've I've been really wanting to do something with like like palm trees lately. So Ooh. watch out for that. That'd be kind of kind of cool. And then once I have the sort of the look and the feel and the layout that I like, I'll usually uh, open up like a moleskin or a moleskina. Uh, <laughs> And uh, sketch out the layout in pencil just to kind of get my ideas on paper. I'm very bad at sketching. I often see pictures of people sketching out these amazing like wireframes and they look so good. And mine is like basically like did a chicken try to to draw a circle <laughs> on this thing. But it's important for me to get it out on a pencil. And then what I do is I jump into my editing program. So currently my editing program is Sketch. I use Photoshop for many years. And uh, I'll just say that sometimes people think like, oh, you're a Photoshop designer or you're you're a Sketch designer. And I, I don't think it really matters all that much which program you use. I'm just on Sketch because I've been on it for a couple of years. I'm really happy with my, my layout workflow. It does most things that I want. So I'm pretty happy with Sketch, but I've heard really Really good things both about i think scott you use figma adobe has their own product called what is it adobe xd, XD yeah which uh, i've heard awesome things about it have you yeah i've used it a little bit there's some cool stuff like this like iterators thing where you can like iterate a like let's say you're building like a grid you would design yeah. like one component and then you just sort of drag it and it would like automatically duplicate it so, so there's some like there's some neat stuff in it i ultimately don't use it because I, I don't use any Adobe products really. And uh, I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Figma. I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to that. But there's also like uh, Envision Studio, which is an early release still. Framer, there's a whole bunch of stuff now, a whole bunch of different, these new school design applications. Yeah, it's funny how how quickly. I will mourn the one thing that I'm losing in all of this is I'm losing a lot of my like raster-based mm. uh, layout stuff. You can still do raster in Sketch, but it doesn't work as well. And I like if you know my, my design, design look and feel. I love texture and patterns mm -hmm. and uh, and that's all, almost always raster based. I had a huge library of brushes and actions from Photoshop that I've I had to say goodbye to when I moved over to Sketch. But I'm pretty, pretty happy in how Sketch is working out for me. Um, anyways, once I've got the kind of the, the layout done in Sketch, what I do is I go back and start to refine what the look and feel is it. So I'll spend a lot of time on colors. I'll spend a lot of time on typography, different patterns, different textures, refining the overall layout, things that 
overlap. And I won't design the entire website in, in Sketch. What I'll do is I'll, I'll just make sure that I'm happy with those main things, which is rough layout, colors, type, pattern. And once you have that down pat, I feel like I can extrapolate that look and feel to the rest of the website. And at that point, I start to move myself into actually writing some, some CSS. So I will often jump out. I would say I jump out of the program early, but not until I have look and feel colors, textures, typography down pat. So that's my design workflow there. What about you? Yeah, mine's quite a bit different, specifically because I don't end up designing that many layouts, right? Uh, you do a new one with each one of your course, client work, or that sort of stuff. I pretty yeah. much have one sort of living project, which is level up tutorials, and that's the primary thing that I I work on design wise. Uh, I I have a you know a freelance project here and there that I design, but for the most part, I'm working with a designer because that's not necessarily my specialty, right? So yeah. uh, the level up tutorials design has been existing since like 2012. So even though I started over a couple of times, the whole thing is always had been based off of like a certain starting point. And, and, and then in that regard, my design style is designing through iteration. I'm not like a talented designer, so it has to be refined and then refined and then refined. And every year I look back at last year's iteration of this site and I just go, oof, I was really bad at this. And I still look at it and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of things that could be better. Uh, but you know, I, I'm, I'm getting better as I do it. Right. So the design aspects of the site are just something that I've worked on and I've worked on and I've worked on over and over again until it starts to actually fits my taste, right? Because I have that common problem where you have good taste, but you don't have good execution. So yeah. I'm working to get better at that execution. Now, uh, one of the things that's helped me do this is since I've designed most of this site in browser, I would say 99% of it designed in browser. One of the things that's helped me lately is to actually go backwards and move this into an actual design application of which I use Figma because of Figma's superior like component based system. So where Sketch has things like symbols and stuff like that, uh, Figma's component system sort of blows it out of the water and it like really mirrors React in a lot more ways. Yeah, so yeah. the components are way more flexible in Figma and that's the reason why I use it. So I've like rebuilt my entire styled components library that I have. Like I've rebuilt the entire styled components library sort of one-to-one -one inside of Figma. Uh, that way... I can grab and drag elements. What's cool about this is that I have published a team library. So if I add anyone onto Level Up Tutorials team, the there's this whole team library thing. And like Figma has this really awesome organizational will have like headings and then it'll have all of your headings named in the visual and you just drag them and drop them. Uh, it's it's more like a it's more like a it's like a, a library like a storybook kind of style thing where you can click through them and see everything a little bit better than than like sketches symbol system. It's way better for like organization. But either way, so I have this whole system now that I've built sort of one to one in styled components that allows me to sort of iterate on some of these design ideas really quickly and see them in layouts across this whole thing using this sort of automatic refreshing component system. And I, I've taken ideas from Atomic Design. I don't necessarily like follow it one-to-one. -one. Uh, if yeah. you don't know, Atomic Design is the book by Brad Frost, where he sort of outlines this component-based system of having like atoms and molecules and, and different types of things to uh, describe different smaller and smaller chunks of your website. But either way, my, my whole design layout is like, again, it's it's goal is to be one-to-one -one in Figma with everything flexible so I can try it out in different layouts. And again, I, I partake in a little bit of light theft. For instance, like the footer of the website was designed sort of to look like a pitchfork.com's footer, not like totally one-to-one. -one. I don't even know if it is still the same anymore. I think Pitchfork's undergone a redesign since then. Yeah, it, it actually follows it a little bit. But basically, I you know, I, I've if you look at pitchfork.com and you look at level up tutorials footer, you'll be able to see some similarities. They're not exactly the same anymore. But so I, I partake in a little bit of light borrowing here and there. For instance, the new animation I have when you hover over any of my tutorial playlists, it does a sort of like dip and grow thing. Uh, I saw something kind of similar on a Patagonia sort of one-off website that was like really well designed. And I, I just really loved the sort of depth that their animation gave. So I kind of yeah. borrowed some ideas about this like sort of dipping, rolling sort of animation uh, and built my thing around there. So uh, I definitely am constantly looking for those inspiration targets and saving URLs, saving photos, uh, that sort of thing. And many of that stuff never ends up making it into anything actual production. But sometimes something grabs me so much, I'm just like, all right, I got to figure out a way to, to you know, be inspired from this in the site. 
It's cool. I, I, that just reminds me, we should totally do a website on design systems. I yeah. haven't worked on a, a whole, I don't know, I've worked on a handful of them uh, in the past, but that seems to be like the new hotness right now. And the company that I talked to this past week, they say that a lot of Sparkbox, a lot of their work is doing design systems where you do things like you design the, the typeface and, and what a card looks like and uh, iconography of the website and, and different colors and like all the stuff that goes into it. And, and Brad Frost Atomic Design is is all part of that. And I think it's really interesting, especially when you have a company that is so large that you cannot like for me, I can just design something and it'll stay consistent across the board. Whereas like you have like a company like Salesforce, I think who was it? What was her name? I think Gina from Salesforce. I listened. I met her at a conference once. And she just made this like thing for Salesforce design system where there was something like Salesforce has something like 14 million employees or something Mm. incredible like that. And they have like something like 30 million different web properties that all need to look the same. And the design system is is how you save that. So we should add a card and we'll do a show on that at some point. We should because my my talk in Romania just recently was basically on design systems. Oh, really? Yeah, it was about component based development and design systems and sort of the intersection there. So, yeah, I have a lot to say on that topic. I I have a lot of good resources to share. So, hey, maybe we can make it the next one. Sweet. If you want to hear it, tweet us at Syntax FM and uh, we'll make it happen. Word. Let's uh, move on to design to dev workflow. So once you have the design down pat or once you have enough of the way, in my case, what does it look like to to take a design and, and build it into HTML? Uh, We're being very simplistic here where uh, in the olden days, what would happen is you would design something and then you would hand it off to a developer and the developer would work on it and then they would hand it off. And stuff is a lot more free flowing right now. But what I'm saying for this is this is how I I approach something that is brand new. Uh, If I have a brand new course website that needs to be designed, I'll do that first initial discovery phase in in sketch. And then once I'm happy with it, I'll move over to my design, uh, move over to my dev workflow. And uh, first thing that I'll do there is set up my tooling that needs to happen. So really depending on what tech I'm specifically using, if I'm if it's a React project, I'll probably reach for style components. If it's uh, just a typical server rendered website or a WordPress website, I'll, I'll search, I'll reach for stylus or SAS and either something like a webpack or a parcel or a, just a regular gulp. I still have lots of projects that are running on, on gulp tab. Task runner just because I thought that that was it's not the best for JavaScript applications, but if you've just got one SAS file or a couple SAS files that need to be spit out into one or a couple CSS files, I still think that it's one of the best and easiest ways to get up and running with that. Then what I'll do is I'll move over to setting up my type. So uh, I'll take any fonts that I have that aren't specifically one of my little dirty little secrets is that I'll often buy a font off of something like Creative Market. And uh, these font authors will often not give you a web ready font you have to make sure that you buy the license for a web ready font but you you have to convert it yourself and for that i'll usually use a, a website like font squirrel there's also a tool i used for a while called i think it was called font prep let's see if that's still a website font prep is no longer being maintained and has been superseded by font plop okay plop. here we go font plop <laughs> it looks like it's like a desktop app that you drag and drop it i hardly ever do do this because uh, like, I don't know how many times do I need to convert a font, maybe a couple times a year. So I'll usually go yeah. to font squirrel and, uh, and convert that over. Once I have all my type set up, I'll go in and start to, I usually have like a variables file where I'll keep all of my specific yellows and greens and blues and, and different colors that I'll use for that. Um, I'll, I'll create different partials that I use often with my course website. I'll share partials amongst the sites. So generally it's a uh, I'm not sharing any of the design, but there's a lot of layout stuff in my courses. Like how do I lay out the videos or how do I lay out reviews or how do I lay out the different sections? A lot of the kind of the layout with whether it's grid or flexbox or floats, a lot of that stuff stays the same. So I'll share that amongst my projects and then I'll sort of like just like add a layer of paint on top to, to make it look uh, different from from every site to every site. I'll import resets, all that good stuff. Um, and once you have all of those in place, what I'll do is I'll try to do as much HTML as possible before styling. So this is one thing that I saw when I was teaching in person. People would get really frustrated with trying to 
start design something and it, it was because that they were not creating all of their html first so what i'll do is i'll try to get all of the html or as much as the html as possible on the page so my unordered list for a list of videos uh, all the images videos that are coming in paragraph tags and different sections and intersections and all that good stuff um, and it will pretty much just be black and white and then once i have that sort of like base that big piece of granite i can start to chisel away at it with with css so that's one of my recommendations for people who get frustrated with bouncing back and forth is try to do as much of your html first then go into your css and then i'll sort of take a two or three passes on this the first pass i'll do just layout stuff so getting things to go where i want them to go and then with each subsequent pass it gets a little bit more fine grain i i spend a little bit more time on the fit and finish of it and then uh, over time it goes from very rough layout to very uh, detailed look. And that, that's another tip I give people who are start, starting to get into this stuff is don't sweat the little stuff up front, because when you're trying to do like large scale layout and fuss over small little typography changes at the same time, it's it's really frustrating. So uh, fuss the little details at the very last, whereas at the very first look at the very the very broad and, and basic stuff. Yeah. And that has to do with like batching. I mean, we know we haven't really talked about batching very much, but then, I mean, there's a whole process of getting things done that involve batching where you group similar tasks together to stay more efficient. Because when you get like really in line with doing one kind of thing, your brain is in that mode. So it's more efficient for you to even do that because if you're bouncing back and forth between uh, writing structure and writing style and writing structure and writing style, you're changing your sort of context all the time. So, I mean, I do that all the time. I'll, I'll, even if I'm doing JavaScript stuff, I'll just do up the structure first, then yep. I'll do the interactivity then I'll do the styling or the other, you know, do the structure, then the styling, then then the interactivity. But like batching those tasks together can really help you be more efficient overall. Totally. That's, that's such a good tip. And I would definitely try to put that in, in place if you're uh, new to this stuff. In terms of tooling, I'll use either something like Browser Sync, which uh, Browser Sync is one of those tools that I absolutely love. It, it does a number of things. First, it just watches your file system. It'll spin up a little development server. It will uh, auto reload your uh, CSS when it changes without having to refresh the page. It will uh, give you a local local host server. It'll give you a local IP so you can bring it up on your phone if you're on the same Wi-Fi network. It'll give you um, local tunnel. So if, if you want to send a link to somebody else, it will sync clicks. So if you had a website open up on like eight different websites and you could use browser sync to sync the scrolling on each one. Um, so big fan of using browser sync or um, a lot of React applications have this built in where uh, you do the hot reloading uh, immediately for you. Parcel has it built in for CSS and JavaScript. And then like the final, I guess the final thing once I've, I've done, have all that set up is I'll obviously build the thing uh, and then I'll finish things off with testing it across different browsers and, and different devices. And what I'll often do is I'll open it up to like a chat room. If it's a course, I'll open up the course website and the actual course to 50 people or so. And then by in turn for them getting early access, they'll just like tons of eyes on it, being able to find things like spelling mistakes or weird issues on uh, uh, two versions old of Safari or uh, on a weird Android phone, then you, you'll be able to, to really get in on it. And that's, I love having, <laughs> being able to just like set loose the hounds on a website because they find absolutely every little quirk of a website. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that's my dev workflow. Cool. What about you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, mine is very similar. I have sort of not necessarily like a library, but I have definitely certain files, especially my styled components or previously like my stylus style systems where I move these things over from project to project. And then the, the stuff that usually is around things like breakpoints or functions that I like to use or shorthands or things like that. And I take them with me from project to project. So typically when I'm starting a new project, I'm almost always moving that stuff over uh, like first and foremost, because I don't want to get into any sort of styling without my handy was it in stylus. I had some mix-ins and uh, now in style components, I have some functions and stuff like that, that I, I just sort of rely on at this point that I just really like. So uh, I'll start a project and I'll move that stuff over um, just so I have everything to my liking, you know, so I don't even have to think about it. And uh, um, 
Yeah, that that's like one of the big things for me is just being comfortable in this environment. And when you're comfortable, like, for instance, the Level Up Tuts code base has been worked on for so long that I'm so comfortable in that environment. So I tend to make most of my projects in that same sort of style, just so I have uh, things where I like them. Um, it depends on the type of project, again, because I'm maintaining a large project as well as occasionally doing new, new, smaller projects. If I'm doing a new, new, smaller project, it really depends. I've been using Gatsby so much lately. So if I'm thinking about this as being like a static site, uh, I'm instantly going to jump for Gatsby, create a project, bring over my uh, tools and get to work. Uh, if it is just going to be a full on, maybe like a headless WordPress, I might look for um, Next.js or something like that. If this is just going to be a front end thing, I would just go for Create React App. And that's pretty much where I've, I've been lately. It's to grab the thing with the least resistance, mm -hmm. uh, bring my stuff over and get to work. So everything else, like a lot of it mirrors what you're talking about. You know, you do all your setup, you write a lot of your structure, and then you sort of batch in the different stuff. For me, the tooling is a little bit different, specifically because Level Up Tutorials is on Meteor, which has this bit of combined sort of front end and back end, and it does the hot reloading for you, and it, it works just really nicely as a, a full-on platform. So I end up just basically, um, if if I'm doing a Meteor site, which is one that would need like a database and like... I would just fire this thing up and, and get to work because, again, it takes care of most of the stuff for you. The last thing I want to do is spend hours and hours and hours on tooling. So I pretty much am always copying and pasting tooling stuff, bringing it over from another project that's using it. And I'm hardly ever writing any of that stuff from scratch. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really my philosophy for getting going on a dev project is to get into the code and into the project as soon as possible, because that's where you're going to be inspired to work and actually like see things happening. Uh, awesome. So yeah, I've got a question about um, you got some notes here on uh, breakpoints. So at what point in your dev process do you start to introduce breakpoints to, to make things responsive? Depends on if I have the design ahead of time or not. Yeah. If, if I have a designer or myself who's designed this thing, I'm doing mobile first straight up. So I design mobile and then typically I'll do the breakpoints per layout or per element per page or whatever as i go so like i'm i won't style the entire site mobile and yeah. then go the breakpoints i'll do here's the home page all right i'm gonna style it from mobile to desktop all in one sitting just so i don't bounce again i'm like sort of batching i don't want to jump and forth back and forth between contexts here i want to keep the context uh, for level up it was a little bit different the site changes all the time so i'll pretty much do the desktop first and then work backwards from there which is kind of backwards but it works yeah nobody there's no like a hundred percent gotta yeah. do it this way yeah i'm i'm i've been always being desktop first just because most of my traffic comes in uh via the desktop yeah, um, i find i find myself not writing nearly as much responsive stuff ever since uh flexbox and grid have come out mm -hmm. specifically since flexbox came out and, and now it's even less now that that grid is out but as i lay out the site i generally lay it out on the desktop and then i'll sort of just kind of keep going down 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 as we get smaller in the last probably two years or so i've always been writing my media queries in line with with sas or style components I uh, mean, I used to write like a separate media queries file or I used to write the media queries at the bottom of like if I had a mm -hmm. if I had like a video layout, I would write the media queries at the bottom of that. And I've since moved to writing the media queries right inside of the selector, which is not something that's part of CSS, but it's you can do it in, in most yeah. uh, like stylus or SAS or style components. And I really like that. Sometimes I, sometimes I'll pop the breakpoint in a variable so that I don't find my, I don't have to keep writing the whole like media max width yeah, whatever i, I know that, you've, that yeah you've had you have some tools that make it a little bit simpler than having to write the whole media query do you remember what that is yeah well it depends on um on stylus i use one that i think is called it might just be called breakpoints to be honest <laughs> <laughs> and it's as you just do plus above medium or whatever and then yeah. you use that on style components i have uh this sort of object that you use, I, I can like link the syntax. I have it in a, a gist somewhere, but uh, it's basically just an object that you could say above dot mead for like medium, and then yeah. you have back ticks and write your your uh, style your CSS inside of there, and that takes care of it. Um, so I also do mine inline with the selector. 
because again, I, I, I just think it's easier to read. It's yeah. nice to kind of keep everything in one spot, especially if you're doing like a one liner, like a CSS grid is changing a little bit from yeah, like two changed. rows to four rows or something. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I'm probably primarily using React for everything. So whether it's like Gatsby or Next or Media or something like that, most of my design setups are sort of React based right now. Awesome. Speaking of React, other people sometimes like to oh, use no. Vue. <laughs> How is that transition? Brutal. No, no. Anyways, Scott and I have been trying to make a hilarious transition to ViewSchool.io, which is one of our sponsors for today. So uh, people ask me all the time, like, hey, Wes, are you going to do a course on Vue? Are you going to do a course on Vue? And my answer was always maybe, but uh, I've got so many other courses that I would love to, to do first that it's unlikely that anytime, if you need to learn Vue right now, it's it's not something that you'll probably get from me. So our sponsor today is viewschool.io and uh, they are they have this thing called the Vue.js Masterclass, which is learn Vue.js from building a real world application from scratch with Alex not even, not even going to attempt to say his last name, K-Y-R-I-A-K-I-D-D-I-S. Uh, he's a Vue core team member and the author of the best selling book, the Majesty of UJS. So cool. he's put out this video course um, that's going to teach you how to build things in Vue.js. And we got a couple couple points right here. You're going to build a real real world application, which is a form. You're going to use Vue and friends. You have the Vue CLI, Vuex, Vue Router, other technologies. You're going to use Firebase, RxJS. You're going to be looking at how to how to use best practices for building something in Vue.js, uh, code splitting, Webpack, modern JavaScript. So some of the, the features of the form that you're going to build, single page application, uh, real-time updates, content moderation, markdown support, serverless, optimized for SEO with meta tags. So it is currently being developed. There's currently over five hours, 75 lessons and five hours of content. So uh, if you want to learn Vue and uh, if you want to jump in on this, we are going to send you to Vue School. V-U-E school.io forward slash syntax. And we've got a kind of a cool deal here. Fifth, the first 50 people are going to get 25% on. Sick. Off, not on. 25% off. So head on over and grab it. And thanks to so much to View School for, for sponsoring. That's awesome. Yeah. And from a core team member too. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, they obviously know what they're talking about because they literally are building View. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unlike me, I'm just kind of pontificating on different things here. <laughs> I'm just joking. I know what I'm doing. Anyways, let's keep rolling with the, the thing. What's the next rolling section that we have homies? here? Are we rolling yeah. with the homies? Uh, next one is Git flow. So uh, what does it look like when you actually need to make an edit uh, to your website? What does your whole Git flow look like that? So usually what I will do is that you maintain your your master branch and um, your master branch is usually what gets pushed to production. I know some people will also have a separate branch for that, but I, I've also worked on uh, so many different teams in the past and they all have their own different Git workflow. People are very opinionated about their, their Git workflow and, and how to approach it. So this is generally what I've settled on now. I know that there's a lot of people that have different workflows and I would love to hear what your workflow is if you tweet us at Syntax FM and we'll make sure we retweet that. So this is generally how it works for me is that I will have an issue with uh, something that needs to get added, a feature request or something that needs to get fixed, a bug report. And those issues will generally for me, I like to keep those in GitHub. Although in the past I've used Jira, which is the worst thing in the world uh, every developer has to use. Um, and generally those tickets uh, in Jira or in GitHub, we'll have a number associated with them. So maybe like dev 113. So what I'll do is I'll take master. I will take a branch off of master into that specific issue called dev 113. And then what I'll do is I'll actually do all of the work inside of that branch that needs to happen committing as I go along. So anytime I do something significant or anytime that I wrap up for the day, I'll, I'll stick that into a commit and push it up because there's nothing more scary to me than having uncommitted work where you could potentially lose it. Yeah. Um, even, even if it's just committed locally, I always like to push it up to my own fork of uh, a branch so that uh, as I have a work in process, I, I, I have it sort of backed up to GitHub or wherever you're pushing your, your Git repos to. 
then what I'll do is generally when you're working on a big project that's pretty quickly moving, if you're working on an issue for three or four days, you're going to be pretty far off from what master's on because other people have been adding things to to master and you want to make sure that it works. So um, you'll do something called a rebase in Git, which will sort of it will it'll take your your changes that you have done. Let's say you added six commits to it. It'll sort of pick them up and put them in the air and then and then bring in master again and then attempt to land your changes back on top of that. You you rebase your changes on the latest version of master. And in most cases, that's fine. In some cases, you have uh, an afternoon's worth of merge conflicts to deal with, which is always a bit of a nightmare. Then depending on who the client is, I don't do this myself, but I've had clients in the past who want me to squash all of my commits. So if I have six or seven commits that detail what I've been working on, they like me to squash it into a single commit so that the the repo history stays nice and clean. I don't like to do that because often I'll have three or four significant changes in a pull request, and I like to have those as separate commits so that I know that what I did in that specific one, what squashing will do is it will just, it'll literally squash it into one commit. You're sort of rewriting history at that point. Interesting. Then I'll, I'll push it up to GitHub, yeah, and uh, I have a pull request, and then uh, that pull request will generally run against any continuous integration, any tests that they have, um, and then at that point, you either tear off a new issue and you start from master again, or if the new issue requires the work of your previous issue, then you create another branch off of. So I had dev 113. I'll create another branch off of that, which is dev 114. That can get a little bit hairy now because especially if you're squashing, squashing things, because if you have to go back to 113, then you get into a little bit of hot mm. water, but it's all doable. Um, that's, that's sort of what I settled on. Uh, any thoughts or, or what are you working on like that? Scott? Yeah, mine's a little bit different. It, and usually if I'm working on a team, uh, the first thing you ask is like, Hey, what is your Git flow workflow? And yeah. uh, they tell me, and then I just follow that 100% because there's nothing worse than, um, we, we had like a, and for it again, we had like some other outside developers coming in, working on the same project and they were like not on our team, a whole different agency. And they came in and just tried to sort of like strong arm their process when we already had a process. Yeah. It was like, we're, I mean, all it did was like separate the two teams when we should have been working together. We were like really frustrated that these guys were trying to impose their system on us when we already had a, a good system going um, just for no reason at all. But so I usually like to adapt to any system that if I'm coming into a project, no questions asked, I'm going to use your system. I'm not going to try to improve it or change it or whatever. My system is pretty much this. And for a long time, I've been the only dev on the site. I do have uh, outside contributors uh, all the time. If you want to get some some practice and you can contribute to level up tutorials, uh, just join the, the Slack channel and reach out to me and I'll add you and you can uh, check out the code base and stuff. But it's all it's all private. I do allow uh, people to work on it, though. And so my system is pretty much this. I have a master branch that's one-to-one with whatever is deployed on the site. Uh, I deploy only from the master branch, and I basically I deploy any time I merge into the master branch. It's not automatic. I don't have any continuous integration set up, but the rule is pretty much if I'm merging into master, that means it's ready to go live. And then so pretty much everything lives in develop while it's being worked on, tested, whatever. So I, I work on a branch called develop, but I don't actually code on the branch develop. The develop is just the sort of branch where everything gets merged into. And then from there, I pretty much do a feature feature branch sort of style. If I'm working on a feature or I'm working on a bug or whatever, I don't name it after the issue number or anything like that. I just name it as a simplified version of whatever that issue is, like based on title. Yeah. If I'm working on the affiliate system, the branch is going to be affiliates. And then I'm going to work on that, do all my th- do all my code, and then push it into develop, uh, just for the merge, merge it and develop. All right, everything's working good. Merge it into master when it's ready to go live. I run all my tests right now because I have uh, both my API and my UI in one code base because it's all in Meteor, right? It makes testing a little bit different. I test all of my uh, React stuff with Jest, and I test all of my uh, non-React stuff, like the server and API and stuff. I test it with actually uh, Mocha. Uh, I'm, I'm working on maybe simplifying my testing. So I run two. I run my server side, my API tests, then I run my client side tests. I just run these both by hand because, uh, again, I, I with the Meteor stuff, I, I haven't necessarily dialed that down yet. Um, all tests pass, good to go. I just run a uh, a deploy command, which is a script 
that deploys to Meteor Galaxy, which is a, a, a really great hosting platform for Meteor sites from the Meteor Development Group. So, I mean, really, my, my Git strategy is to have master one-to-one, develop is sort of where the changes are happening, and then I'm writing code always in a feature branch. And if I have contributors, they either make their own feature branch and I merge it in or with a pull request to develop. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I always like hearing uh, what everyone's... It sounds like we're fairly similar. Yeah. Yeah. They're all very like little flavors of the same kind of style. As long as you have something that works for you. And and mine has been born through refinement, just as I'm sure yours has, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Your little things that you do come about because of issues that you've had in the past and then you fix them yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And speaking of things that you can work on refining, you can always work on refining your CSS grid skills. And now one of these tools that's going to help you build CSS grids, design CSS grids, and really understand CSS grids so much more is Coffee Cup Software CSS Grid Building Tool. As far as uh, code generation and UI design tools, this thing is awesome. Yeah, uh, it actually is awesome. I, I said on previous podcasts, they they reached out to me because I have a, a course on CSS Grid. And uh, one of the hardest things that I found with, with CSS Grid is being able to write CSS Grid code and then visualize what it's going to look like because it is such a visual thing. And that's why we use these grid visualizers that, that come in something like Firefox. So they came out with this Coffee Cup Software is this company that makes a, a bunch of different like website designers. They have a, a responsive uh, site designer where you can code a lot of the visual aspect of your application in this GUI and then export out the code. Um, and then they they built this an, uh, additional one for CSS Grid. So I was like, okay, let's check it out. I doubt it will be that good. And uh, I had a call with them and they have this layout editor you can design in CSS Grid or Flexbox or, or Block or, or whatever it is that you need. Um, and then inside of CSS Grid, there's a whole bunch of stuff like how many columns are there? How many rows are there? What are the implicit versus the explicit columns? Uh, what are the flex values of all of the different um, flexbox elements that you have? So there's really a lot going on there in, in CSS Grid. And, and let me tell you, when I hit the export code, it's a pretty much, with the exception of adding one additional class to some of your selectors, which is something that the, the editor needs to, to be able to import that code back in. It's pretty much just the grid code that I would write myself. So if you're looking for a tool to help you write CSS grid code, you need to check out Coffee Cup CSS Grid Builder at cssgrid.cc. You can go ahead and download it for free. They also have a whole bunch of awesome resources for uh, getting started with uh, understanding how CSS grid works. So thanks so much to Coffee Cup Software for sponsoring and grab it at cssgrid.cc. Nice. Super cool. Yeah. And one of those things that's really cool about that, too, is that like if you are still like shaky on your CSS grid code, you could use it as a total learning tool to really just look and analyze their code and see like maybe how are the I mean, their code so good. It's like see how you should be writing your code, too. You know, yeah, like I need I need a column where I need a grid with six columns and then I need element number four to span from columns two to six. Right. Yeah. And also, I want it to span from row three to four. Uh, you can just do that, export it, and then look at the exported code and go, okay, that's how I would do it. Now let me implement it into my own. So check it out. Yeah. So cool. The last thing, well, maybe the second to last thing we have on our list is deployment. Um, I already briefly mentioned mine, but really for deployment for me is that I deploy with a Meteor Galaxy, and it's pretty much just a one, uh, one-liner script and I have it aliased, or I have it not aliased, it's in my, actually, I have it both aliased and I have it in my package.json. So I have it in my package.json as uh, deploy, right? So you could just do yarn deploy, or I also have yarn deploy alias to just deploy. <laughs> so I'm like lazy enough where I would like removed one word from the command <laughs> just so I could type deploy into my command line because that's uh, that's how I roll, I guess. So I, I pretty much just type deploy from master after all my tests have passed again i don't have any continuous testing integration that sort of stuff uh, i'm looking to add all of my tests into that process to have it automatically build into galaxy but i just moved from bitbucket to github so uh, i'm still in the process of rewriting some of that stuff that i have here but really yeah that that's it uh nothing crazy the only thing is separate about that is uh, we have a 
brief note on like API keys and stuff like that. I keep my API keys and this Meteor has a file called settings.json, which is essentially just a JSON file. And there's two objects in JSON or in this file. One is just sort of your client side code where everything is public, right? Your public stuff and then your secret stuff. So anything that you put in settings.json is your secret stuff and you can add it in your site as meteor.settings. And then your stuff and you get access to it uh, server side whatever as a secret but it doesn't live in your repo and then when you run your deploy command it references that file and uses those variables so uh that's how i, I work with all of my secret api keys and stuff like that yeah you got you got a lot of secrets there scott oh yeah you know <laughs> me <laughs> all right <laughs> how i do it i've i have a couple like I still have like lots of different websites that I maintain all of the sites that run both my paid and my free courses, including the viewer. All of that is run under uh, one application. That's the biggest application that I have. It's called Boss Monster, and that is currently hosted on DigitalOcean. And the way that I deploy it right now is is actually pretty simple. I use rsync, which is a, a Unix uh, command line tool. The, the easiest way to to describe rsync is that it's sort of like Dropbox for Linux, meaning that it will analyze your files locally and remotely, and it will sync the files. It'll push up push up files that have changed locally to your server, and then anything that was deleted locally will be deleted on the actual server. There's a whole bunch of different options there, and uh, that's a very, very simple way to do it. Then after I've done an rsync, I'll jump onto the server uh, via SSH and just give it a quick uh, reboot. I use a, a, a tool called Forever, uh, which mm-hmm. what, what Forever will do is if your NPM script falls over for whatever reason, maybe a user hits a specific use case that you didn't intend and uh, and the, the app will crash, then that will uh, it'll log it, which is great. And then you can it will just restart the restart the process for you. Uh, which is good because it's not like something like PHP where PHP doesn't really fall over. It's just like you just refresh the page and visit that <laughs> that thing again, right? Yeah, I'm just imagining PHP falling over as if it was like some sort of actual entity. Just sort of, oh boy. <laughs> oh, here I go. It's just like a wobbly <laughs> elephant. Oh. <laughs> no, that's it's pretty simple. Um, in the past, I've also used just SSHing files up. So I've had uh, different commands that will just SSH up an entire folder uh, to it. So I am looking at moving over to something that's a little bit more resilient because that's that's pretty simple. Um, and I ha- also have to manually SSH into the box to to restart the mm-hmm. thing. So what I and also that will that often gives me a, I don't know two seconds of downtime, which inevitably every couple months somebody catches me doing a little two second downtime and, and sends me an email when they could have just refreshed two seconds later. Yeah. Yeah. So I have multiple containers running the site and it updates on one, which is a container and then updates. Yeah. Yeah. Zero, zero downtime over that's, here. That's what I'm looking to move over just for uh, for performance as well as as no downtime on that as well. So whether that's moving over to Docker, I'm I'm mostly leaning towards using now Zeitz now right yeah, now. It's I have sick. had a bit of a, a bit of downtime issues with them in the last six months or so. I've, I've had a couple of websites go down. Um, but they're they're working hard on it. I think a lot of the issues were from from DDoS and and not their own. Uh, it's just from from people that were have malice against them. Um, and what that will do is it will start up your website and then it'll cut the domain name over so that you don't have any downtime. And then it does like load balancing and stuff for you as well, which is uh, something that I want to do. So I'll probably move over to that at some point. Other other things, if I have like a WordPress website, I'll use sometimes in the past. It's not what I use right now, but you can actually use Git to to deploy websites as well, where uh, you could have like a branch on on. You could have your Git repo and then you could just SSH into your box and do a Git pull and that'll pull down all of your actual assets. I said WordPress earlier with WordPress, it gets a little bit hairy because you also have assets, which you don't really want to put those files into your Git repo. Some people do, you can, um, but it's not really something I want to do because then if someone uploads something remotely, you, you upload something locally, it gets kind of hairy. But we've had a past sponsor, which is Delicious Brains. They have a uh, tool called w- WP Migrate yeah. DB Pro which is exactly what you want because I always have a Git repo of my website locally, um, but the the data is the harder part, which is I want to pull all the fresh data from the server down to my local host, so I'm working with the most up-to-date content. So I use that plugin, and then I'll just uh, either 
uh, FTP, drag and drop the whole the whole theme up when there's a change, or I'll do a git uh, a git pull of just the theme uh, for that website so that I get my latest in there. So I, I have all kinds of different deployment strategies. Not totally happy with any one of them. Oh, even the uh, I forgot the syntax website is built on CodeShip which uh, there's a lot of services out there. A past sponsor, again, Deploy HQ. You can just watch your Git repo. And then when there's a commit that lands into the like a specific branch, you can run some scripts. And those scripts could do testing. Those scripts can do deployment. So uh, what we use CodeShip for is CodeShip will automatically watch our Git repo. And then when there, uh, a commit lands in the uh, master branch of the Git repo, it will automatically do a uh, now just it'll just run now and, and uh, there's some keys and stuff that we need to put in there and it will deploy it and then alias the syntax.fm domain name over to the inst- the latest instance of that now nice yeah so i don't know a lot, lot going on there but uh it's kind of interesting i love hearing how different people handle the deployment of their websites yeah and for project structure what do you what do you do there yeah, project structure is something a long long time ago and I'm really glad I did this. I was shown by actually a company called Jet Cooper which is now Shopify Canada. They they got bought, but they showed me that every single time they start a project, they number the folder and what that will do is that every single project has a folder like I have 0230 syntax, uh 0231 stickers, 0232 node, 0235 kate. And that, these are all the different projects that I have. And then that way I associate, I can remember the number that I'm working on and I use the command line Z, which will let you to jump to folders just by kind of fuzzy matching them. And I can just do Z syntax or Z mm. 230. And then I, I don't have to know the exact name of the folder, but it'll just jump me right into uh, that's uh, whether I remember the number or like the numbers are nice because it'll it'll show me like kind of by date of when when that project was created. And then the name is nice because I can often just look it up by uh, by the name of that. And then inside of that, I'll usually have a code folder that has the application in it. I'll have a assets folder that contains anything that the client or myself needs to hold on to, whether that's textures. I'll often grab a lot of uh, icons from the noun project. And with the noun yeah. project, you need to credit people that that you use those icons for. So I'll keep a running list of icons and, and people I need to credit in there, logos, you name it. And then I'll have a design folder that contains the source uh, images for for Photoshop. And then I usually just do Git inside of the code folder, which is the, the web application. Nice. What yeah. about you? So mine again is this Meteor. So it's a little bit different. Meteor 1.7 recently came out. And uh, before Meteor had everything eagerly loading. And uh, this is like an old legacy thing in Meteor is that by default, everything was sort of eagerly loading. So if you didn't want it to eagerly load, you put everything in an imports folder. So everything of mine currently lives in an imports folder to do like proper important structure. Uh, however, now that 1.7 is out, you don't have to do that anymore. So I'm uh, working on modifying this right now as we speak, actually. But eventually, or pretty much everything inside of my imports folder is my application. And, and that folder structure looks like API, where I have all of my GraphQL mutation schemas, all based on feature. So I all have my entire API based on feature broken up into its individual folders inside of my API folder. And then I have my UI folder, which is all of my React components, which are server-side loaded. So it's not necessarily like a client folder. It's basically just all of my components. Inside of my UI folder, I have an elements folder, which has an index.js, which imports all of my styled components. And so I have, and this is, this is not necessarily all of the styled components in my site. This is the base components. So I have a whole system of elements that are based components that are, it's almost like my own, well, it is my own design system. Anytime I need any of these components, instead of having to import one from a specific file, I'm importing, you know, input from elements. Essentially, it's almost like it's its own node package while keeping it in the code base. So I have that as well as like sort of design utilities. And then each of my features in the site are broken out into sort of feature folders for those individual components, all again, React components inside a UI folder. Uh, next, I have a startup folder, which has both client and server startups, which is where all of my Apollo config sort of lives. Well, it's not necessarily the config. It's all of the Apollo startup stuff and my server-side rendering stuff. Uh, The Apollo server config lives in the 
uh, API folder. But it basically imports everything in there and anything that needs to happen on startup, whether that's server-side rendering or collecting the styled components for server-side rendering or any of that sort of stuff happens inside of those startup folders. And then I have a utilities folder, which is like utility functions that can be used on both client and server. Uh, if it's a client-side utility, it's most likely going to be, or a UI-style utility, it's going to be inside of another utilities folder inside of UI. But I do have a utilities folder at the root for uh, utilities that are used across both of those. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, it's a main. The meat of it is between the UI folder and the API folder. Again, yeah, um, yeah. Nifty. That's. I always like hearing uh, everyone's different setups, and I've learned a lot just by being able to to view it view other people's layouts and even when you get into react world you have like a lib and a, a components folder and a source folder and uh, it's kind of neat to to see how other people approach doing this kind of thing yeah absolutely um, although did you hear that did you watch that um ryan doll 10 things i regret about node.js yes i did and uh, one of the things he regretted was index.js which allows you to require a folder yeah uh, and and leaving the .js off of a require I don't another thing. See, I don't like I see where he's coming from, but I like both of those things. Like yeah. yes, .js is is more explicit, but like I I'm I don't really care. I don't know. I would just I, I honestly just don't I don't necessarily <laughs> agree. I like can't even come up with the words exactly, yeah. but a lot of the things that he if if you haven't seen this, um Ryan Dahl who's the creator of Node.js, he came out he had a he came out of hiding. He was gone for the longest time and he did a talk at a JSConf and said the 10 things that he regrets about Node.js and how he designed it. And it's a really, really, really interesting talk to see someone who had built this thing say, okay, now that we're six years in on Node, what do I regret about it? And uh, that whole, a lot of the things that he said were specifically from like a, like the language maintainers thing rather than like a user standpoint. Because a lot of the things that he said, I was like, oh, that would probably make it harder for me, the developer. Um, but probably better for for the language in in general. So he's coming he's coming out with this thing called Dnode, mm -hmm. which is like trying to like a TypeScript based sort of node ish runtime, like a, a JavaScript on the server side, but done via TypeScript, which is pretty interesting. So I'm I'm all ears on that because he obviously changed the industry with Node. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping an eye on it, definitely. All right, what about sick picks? Sick picks. Uh, I'm going to sick pick another Nintendo Switch game. This is one that my wife and I have been playing nonstop. We like to find games that are like two players that we can play either co-op or against each other or whatever. I mean, Courtney and I's like favorite game to play together is the 2D Super Mario games where you can both play on screen at the same time. You know, we like to, to play a lot of uh, video games like that. So uh, we found this game. It's not exactly a, um, hidden or something, but overcooked which it might interest you because it's basically a cooking game <laughs> oh. uh, where you're, you're two little cartoon characters working in a kitchen. And the, the whole goal of this game is that you have to get dishes out of the kitchen in a certain amount of time. So the ticket comes in and you have to assemble, like let's say you're making burgers. You gotta you prepare the meat, cut up the, the lettuce, cut up the tomatoes. You gotta cook the beef. You gotta assemble the burger on the plate and everything. And you have to get it out in a certain amount of time. So you're all under a huge time crunch. So at its very most basic, it takes a little while. It takes a lot of communication. By the end of it, like Corny and I are both talking like real chefs. We're like, one up, burger up, like <laughs> shouting at it. It's like, it, it like really takes that level of coordination. Uh, you know, it's it's hilarious. I'll be like, burgers all day. Let's keep going on those burgers. Like, you know. That's hilarious. And we, we let's like crack up. But then the game decides to throw curveballs at you and, and it has things like, oh, well, now there's an earthquake in the middle of this dinner service and the ground is separated and you can't access each other or each oh, other's that's things. Unfortunate. So you have to start like preparing for these events or one of them you're like <laughs> cooking in the dark or something like that. And it can become a total mess. Like if you leave the soup on too long or the burger on too long, it catches on fire and you have to go find the extinguisher before the whole thing burns down. And you're like, <laughs> it's totally running around and frantic. The whole thing is hilarious. So if you have a, a game that you like to play co-op, I, I definitely recommend Overcooked. I don't think it's just on the Switch. I think it's on lots of stuff, but we have been loving that game. That looks super fun. I'm looking at it on Steam right now. Oh, yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it's a blast. <laughs> Awesome. I am going to sick pick the Skyrim Solace, which is a uh, 
a global Wi-Fi hotspot. So I have a bit of a problem when I go traveling. I want data on my phone, um, but I don't want to just get a local SIM because uh, first you have to unlock. My phone is unlocked, but you have to unlock your phone. And if me and my wife both have to unlock our phone, it's like a couple hundred bucks. And mm-hmm. then you have to go buy the SIM and, and charge it up. And uh, the most important thing is that you lose your, your number, which if you use iMessage on iOS, and you don't have your number, you get into sort of this like iMessage hell where like your messages aren't being received oh, sometimes. Right, yeah. It's a it's a really big nightmare. And then also like I just don't want to lose my number because people have that number. They text me. People I still want to be able to get emergency phone calls when I'm away. So uh, I like to keep my number. So I a long time ago I used this thing called No Roaming K N O W, which is a, a little sticker that you put on top of your SIM card, and then you, it allows you to switch back and forth between your your other SIM and this one. But uh, it just it just never worked. It, it's it's it was great because the prices were good. It was amazing because you could just put it on your phone. You don't have to carry anything around. That's extra, and uh, it just doesn't work very well for me. I it, it took like an hour or two hours. Half the time it didn't work, and then I was spending data roaming data to try uh, to be on the on the phone with support and it's just a nightmare so i don't recommend that but i, I found this other one which is the skyroam solace which is just this like hockey puck that is bright orange that you carry around and it just makes a wi-fi hotspot. i think for about eight or nine bucks a day you get unlimited and i put that in quotes uh unlimited data you get 500 megs of lte and then after 500 megs, you either pay another nine bucks or you can you can go on edge, which is enough for uh, push notifications and, and whatnot. So mm. um, I was pretty happy with it. I uh, popped it on to USB charger. I, I drove all the way down to Dayton, Ohio with it and I, I carried it around all weekend in my backpack. And uh, it's it was great. Uh, nice and nice and sturdy. The only downside was that it's too big to put in your pocket. So if you go to the bar or something like that, you can't, you can't really take it with you. You so, can if um, you want to look like you have a giant hockey puck in yeah. your pocket. <laughs> Which would not be out of place in Canada, but in the States, <laughs> it totally would be. Yeah, uh, Canada, but overall, that seems like normal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's hilarious. Overall, really, really happy with it. Um, it's, it's also going to be nice traveling with my family because... My wife can also use part of that 500 megs and they've got iPads for the kids. They can all use that. I don't also it's it's kind of cool because sometimes if you are traveling even inside of Canada and you're running low on data, I only have six gigs a a month on data. And uh, if you want a hotspot and you want to work for a couple of days or if even if the Internet goes goes out in my my house, I don't want to use my my data plan. I don't mind paying nine bucks for being able to, to keep working. So. Uh, check it out if you're looking for that. I know a lot of people who's in your, the states. Yeah, I was gonna say, have, who's your wireless provider? Because I, I I'm on T-Mobile and it's like I get unlimited 24 seven and what's it called? Uh, like hotspot, unlimited hotspot. And get this, when I went to Iceland, I got off the plane in Iceland and it was like congratulations, or it's like you for arriving in Iceland, you get free calling, free text messaging, and 3G data in Iceland. And I was like, I'm not paying. Like, what is it? Like, I'm not signed up for I'm not signed up for anything special. Just my plan has that. And so I thought it might just be Iceland. No, I arrive in England. No, here's your <laughs> here's your plan for England. I arrive in Romania. And it's like, yep, you get 3G. You get unlimited text and calling. I was just like, what is this? Like, I didn't sign up for any. I actually looked on my plan on T-Mobile and it was like, you're not paying for anything extra international. So it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I have no idea You live how that in works. the utopia that is the United States where things are cheap and uh, you're, yeah, you're not really in Canada. All the telecom companies will rob you and it's not a good deal at all. And some of the telecom companies, not mine, have this thing called Rome like home where you can pay nine bucks a day just to use your your data plan from home, which is pretty good deal because uh, then you, you have it on your phone. But I don't I don't specifically have that. So and I know other people are just like, oh, people are saying just buy a Google FI and, and yeah. bring a bring a phone or get a Google Fi SIM card and put it into one of these hotspot things. But you can't get that because I'm in Canada. So this might not apply to you if you live anywhere in Europe where <laughs> telecom is amazing or apparently U.S. where telecom is also amazing. But I don't think it Canadian. is typically. I think I just got lucky. I'm like grandfathered into some old plan or something. Oh, that's nice. What about a shameless plug? 
Yeah, I'm going to shamelessly plug my uh, latest React series, Level 2 React, which is intermediate React topics. We talk about all sorts of cool stuff, like why and how you would use a render prop. And render props are everywhere right now. And I help demystify the process of setting up a render prop-based component. Not only that, but I talk a lot about the benefits. So we go sort of step by step by step and why you can see down the line why this thing is actually better. Uh, we also talk about portals, fragments. We talk about awesome animations. I use a library called React Spring to get physics-based animations to work interactivity uh, into your site. So we build like the Tinder layout where you're dragging things around and stuff's happening because of it. So uh, check it out, level two React at leveluptutorials.com. Become a pro. And I'm gonna mention the Level Up Pro yearly subscription because I don't know if it's obvious enough on the site. I'm gonna work on making this more obvious. But if you sign up for a year, you save 25% off that pro subscription. So sign up for a year and Dang. save all that money. There's going to be a new series every single month. And if you look back at each series that's come out so far, it should be an indication of how uh, awesome the content is going to be every single month moving forward. So check it out, leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro. Thank you. Sick. I'm mean, just going to plug my courses again at westboss.com forward slash courses. I've got all kinds of free and paid courses. ES6 for everyone, which is now updated for ES7 and ES8. All the single weight stuff is, is in there. Even though that I recorded that course about a year and a half ago now, it's still very relevant because there's a lot of people that are, are still a little bit shaky on the different parts of ES6. I think a lot of people don't think they're shaky on the on ES6 until they come into one of my workshops and you see using classes or uh, back ticks or all of the different parts. There's like uh, 30 different pieces of, of ES6. So check that one out at ES6.io or I've got a course React for Beginners, which is going to be, I got another one coming out, Advanced React that will be out shortly. I've got CSS Grid, which is free, JavaScript 30, which is free, course on learning Node at learnnode.com, which will teach you all. It'll pretty much, it talked about my course platform today, how pretty much how I built that thing is exactly what I use in learnnode.com. So all kinds of stuff, too much to mention on here, but I realize that Scott and I uh, don't necessarily explain who we are every single episode. We teach people how to get better at web development and we each have our own uh, course platforms where we sell different types of courses. So uh, if you enjoy syntax, uh, consider supporting us and, and grabbing a course or two uh, at, our, at, our, at our links. Hit the show notes for that. Yeah, I think that's something we don't do a good job of. We need to every episode <laughs> be like, here's who we are and what we do. We're professionals. So yeah, yeah. It's funny that how many people have found my stuff through the podcast, which is it makes me really happy because I try to be on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. And like there's there's just different audiences all over the place. And there is a lot of overlap in it. But I think it's important to, to make sure that we're telling people what we do and, and why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. just sell you a bunch of stuff. Sell you. Yeah. Cool. Buy my book. I don't have a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Anything else? I got nothing. Nothing. Right. And if you want to see that episode about um, design systems, maybe we can do that next one. Let us know if that's something you're interested in. Cool. All right. We'll see you next week. All right. Peace. Peace. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.